Hey, and welcome to another episode of my podcast and thank you for joining. This show gives you updated knowledge and tools for better well-being, brain health, mental performance and longevity. You know, I understand your time is valuable, so the goal is to pack these episodes with the latest in science, interesting and inspiring ideas and actionable tools with my expert guests. If you want to stay updated on new episodes, subscribe to YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcast and sign up to my newsletter inkaland.co at newsletter. If your goal is to live longer, sleep better, be fitter and have a better mood, then this episode is for you. It's centered around a topic that affects all these factors, chronobiology. My guest is Dr. Greg Potter, who has a PhD in sleep, nutrition and metabolism and a master's degree in exercise physiology. He's the co-founder of Resilient Nutrition and makes regular appearances on TV, newspapers, radio and podcasts talking about these topics. We talk about inner biological clocks that every one of us has and how they work. We cover what's the best time to eat for weight loss and blood sugar balance and when to exercise for the best gains. We cover how to use light and supplements for improving sleep and who should use melatonin and who should not. We cover facts about fasting and time-restricted eating from the chronobiology perspective. We also cover how to improve brain functions with aligning circadian rhythm and much more. By learning about these clocks and adjusting your lifestyle accordingly, you can transform yourself into an energy powerhouse and gain more healthy years to your life. So we'll get into the episode and to these clocks in no time, but I just wanted to ask two things first. Firstly, sleep and circadian rhythm issues are a huge, huge problem these days and so common. You've probably experienced sleep issues at some point and how it feels like to wake up after having slept not so well. So if you know anyone who suffers from sleep issues, your loved one or a friend or anyone else, please consider sharing this episode with them. Also, please consider rating my podcast in Apple Podcast because this really helps the visibility of the episode and in this way, more people are able to find them as well. Secondly, I'd really love to hear from you and what really spoke to you in this episode. So if you want to comment on some of the topic in this podcast or ask some questions, find the podcast recording on YouTube and comment below that video. Of course, feel free to just pop by to say hi. It's always nice to hear that there is someone on the other side of the screen and the audio stream listening. And this definitely motivates me to share even more. So let's dive into today's episode. Enjoy listening. Just a heads up, we had minor issues with the audio at the first half of the recording, which we did fix at the second half of the recording. But if you can tolerate this small cracking sound at the first part of the recording, I highly, highly recommend to listen that part as well, because there is tons of good information about chronobiology, circadian rhythm, how to know if you're a morning or evening person and when's the best time to exercise and much more. But if you find this intolerable, then definitely listen to the second part of the episode, which has a lot of practical tools on how to improve your sleep and circadian rhythm. I just wanted to let you know. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing your knowledge on chronobiology and circadian rhythms and sleep and nutrition today. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Uh, so I would like to start with this like a circadian rhythm chronotype definition. What are 
circadian rhythms or chronotypes? Circadian rhythms and chronotypes are two different things. And circadian rhythms are just rhythmic, self-sustained processes that take place roughly every 24 hours in our bodies. They evolved in response to the rotation of the Earth around its axis, which, of course, results in the light-dark cycle. And to thrive in that type of changing environment, organisms evolve their own biological rhythms. And these occur across different timescales. So some of them are quite short. Think of your heartbeat. That's an example of a so-called ultradian rhythm. Some of them are circadian, which are rhythms that recur roughly every 20 to 30 hours or so. So the most obvious of these is the sleep-wake cycle. But there are circadian rhythms in all sorts of processes. For example, your core body temperature fluctuates over the course of the 24-hour cycle by just under one degree Celsius. And that has all sorts of effects. One of those effects, of course, is that it influences your exercise performance such that in general, exercise performance, particularly in strength and power exercise, such as lifting weights or sprinting, tends to be highest around the time the core body temperature is highest, which is typically in the biological afternoon, so maybe 5 or 6 p.m. for most people. But these processes are also relevant to things such as food intake. So if you think that our ancestors would have been physically active to hunt and gather food, then it would have made sense that there were changes in the immune system to anticipate increased exposure to pathogens at these times of day too. And for that reason, there are rhythmic changes in the immune system, but there are also changes in digestion, how well we absorb various different nutrients in our food, the speed at which our digestive system pushes undigested food through the tract and so on. And then there are various metabolic changes too, such that as one example, oral glucose tolerance varies over the course of the day. So if you take people and you give them a standardized meal at about 8 a.m. and then on another day, you give them a standardized meal at about 8 p.m. and you otherwise control for various factors, then you'll find that their blood sugar responses to the meal in the morning are on average about 17% lower than they are in the evening. And that's because of various different circadian rhythms. So one is how much insulin your pancreas produces, for example. But there are all sorts of other rhythms that affect that glucose disposal. And so the point is that if we can understand how the circadian system is regulated, then we can synchronize our biological rhythms each day with the world around us and thereby improve how we feel and how we function. And then chronotype is a different construct. And chronotype basically describes an organism's temporal organization, which is a fancy way of saying whether somebody is more of a morning lark or a night owl. And <clears throat> there nowadays is a large range of different chronotypes. So in modern society, you might have about a 12-hour discrepancy between the mid-sleep time of the earliest birds and the latest night owls. Did you say 12-hour? Absolutely, yeah. So That's crazy. For some, for some people, the earliest birds, their mid-sleep time is about 11 p.m. And for the latest night owls, their mid-sleep time might be about 11 a.m. And that largely reflects the fact that nowadays 
many of us expose ourselves to quite weak time cues or zeitgebers is a German word meaning time giver. And these are different exposures that are important to synchronizing our biological rhythms each day with the world around us. And the most prominent of these is the light dark cycle. But I'll pause there. Okay, so what do you actually mean by mid-sleep time? You said that word. Was it that? Mid-sleep cycle? Yeah, mid-sleep time. So if you went to bed at midnight and you woke up at 8am, then your mid-sleep time would be 4am. And that's often used as a proxy for chronotype. It's not actually the best marker of chronotype because chronotype is a biological construct and it should really reflect an output of the circadian system. And in science, people will typically use certain markers of circadian phase. So circadian rhythms have different elements. One of these is circadian phase. And this is basically where somebody is in their circadian cycle and you normally express this relative to a reference point. And in the case of circadian rhythms, this is typically what's known as dim light melatonin onset, which normally takes place roughly two hours before somebody goes to bed. So at this time of day, as the sun goes down and as darkness sets in and we're not ex as exposed to as much light, our brain starts synthesizing more melatonin. And melatonin is a, is a particularly accurate marker of circadian phase and for that reason scientists will use it so if you wanted to look at somebody's chronotype the best way in scientific terms would arguably to be to be to look at somebody's circadian phase relative to say dusk but practically in the real world it's more common to have people answer questionnaires about their preferred sleep wake timing and then categorize them relative to their peers of a given age and sex and see where they are along the spectrum from early birds to night owls. And within what I just said, there's the idea that somebody's preferred sleep wake time, of course, changes across the lifespan. Somebody's born and for the first few weeks, their biological rhythms aren't really consolidated. And so they don't have clearly defined sleep wake cycles. Then there's this phase in which they, they do have sleep wake cycles, but they, they drift around the 24 hour clock. And then they reach a point where they consolidate. And as young people, we tend to go to bed early and wake up early. We then go through development and during adolescence, we get later and later and later. And then our sleep wake timing is typically latest around the end of adolescence, typically about 19 and a half years old for boys, 21 for girls. And then from there to the grave, people get earlier and earlier such that by the time somebody is relatively elderly, they might be earlier than when they were children. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, there is the, yeah, this idea uh, that we should become more familiar with our chronotype and circadian rhythms and live accordingly, so to speak, as you, as you mentioned, like time the feeding and sleeping. Um, why is it actually important? Like, wh why should we do this? Why should we know the chronotype? Or why is it beneficial for our health? I think it can be helpful to know your chronotype. And the reason is that our bodies are best prepared for different activities at different points in the circadian cycle. And I mentioned one of those earlier, namely that people are typically most powerful and at their strongest 
in the biological afternoon. And there's a little bit of evidence by some Eastern European researchers showing that if you have people regularly do strength training in the afternoon, they'll tend to gain a little bit more strength than if they do that strength training in the morning. Similarly, there's lots of work looking at nutrition and whether when somebody consumes certain foods influences how they subsequently digest and metabolize them. And I touched on that earlier when I was speaking about glucose tolerance. But the broader question is how helpful chronotype is as a construct. And I think that as I was just touching on, if you think about your activities relative to your sleep-wake cycle, then you can start to experience some benefits as a result of that. And we'll speak more about some specific strategies that people can try if they want to do that. However, I just want to make it clear that if you take people and you put them in more natural environments in which they're exposed to lots of outdoor light during the day, they're exposed to minimal light at night, they're physically active during the day and they're inactive at night, then what you find is that the range of chronotypes from the earliest people to the latest people narrows very quickly and dramatically. And my favorite experiments that show this were done by Ken Wright, who's at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And he did two separate camping experiments, one in 2013, one in 2017. And he just had some people go camping in the Rocky Mountains for slightly different durations in the two experiments, but it was for about five to seven days. And what he found was that while at the start of the experiment, there was a large difference between the earliest and latest people, after just a few days of camping, pretty much everybody was sleeping in sync with the natural light dark cycle. And obviously that's not going to be the case so much if you live very far from the equator. If you live in polar regions, then you might have permanent sunshine in the summer months and permanent darkness in the winter months. So it's rest, less relevant to those people. But I think for most of us, the point remains that if we can mimic some aspects of the lifestyles of our distant ancestors, then our clocks will tightly synchronize with the world around us and will likely experience some health benefits. Some of those health benefits aren't just mediated by the circadian system. Some of them are independent. Light exposure, for example, has all sorts of positive effects on, for instance, how well your eyes function. If you look at the fact that worldwide myopia or short-sightedness has increased dramatically in recent years, a lot of that is driven by people spending too much time indoors. Some of it might relate to doing some close work too, but basically that lack of light exposure influences dopamine signaling in the retina such that people are more likely to become short-sighted. Similarly, many people will be very familiar with seasonal affective disorder. And this is that dip in mood that many people experience in the winter months. This probably has something of a circadian basis, but it's also because light has some effects on mood and alertness and brain function that are independent of the circadian system, some of which are affected by a structure in the brain named the perihabenular nucleus. And then there are effects of light on things such as blood pressure. So light exposure will increase nitric oxide signaling in the vascular system, dilating blood vessels and thereby reducing blood pressure. And there's been some interesting work recently suggesting that light exposure might even influence things such as glucose responses to meals. 
So if you expose some people to strong lights at certain times of day, then you will influence the degree to which their blood sugar swings following a standardized meal. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah, and light also has a pretty important link to the serotonergic system. And th there was like uh, this research or review review article looking at the circadian rhythms and their import importance. And they found that, that there is evidence that the, the circadian rhythms have a critical role in major depressive disorder, Alzheimer's disease, uh, several mental health disorders, even stress and addiction and stuff like that. So yeah, in that sense, I, like, yeah. I think it's fair to say that the circadian system and sleep are likely involved in all mental ill health disorders. And sometimes it's quite difficult to disentangle the effects of the circadian system from sleep. And it's also important to recognize that there's typically a bi-directional relationship between the circadian system and mental health and also sleep and mental health. So if you take the example of sleep and mental health, then if somebody is anxious during the day and they're struggling with a particular problem and they're prone to rumination, then those experiences are going to affect how well they sleep at night. And this can set off a vicious cycle because if their sleep at night is then disrupted, then their mood the next day is likely to suffer. And the corollary of this, of course, is that if you take people with mental health disorders, so whether we're talking about bipolar depression or anxiety, or if you take somebody who's struggling with some sort of neurodegenerative disorder, Parkinson's, Huntington's, whatever it might be, Alzheimer's, and you improve their sleep, then you will typically also improve their brain function. And there's a researcher in the States, Alison Harvey, who's done a lot of nice work looking at interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in these populations, showing that if you improve their sleep, you also improve their affect, so how well they feel, and their brain function, and so on. So the good news is that there is hope for those people, but certainly there are very strong ties, and in many instances, the appearance of either circadian rhythm abnormalities or sleep abnormalities precedes the onset of these diseases by decades. And there are also some sleep-wake disorders that quite potently predispose to people to developing certain issues down the line. So a salient example of that is REM sleep behavior disorder, which is a sleep disorder in which people act out their dreams. So during rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which we have our most vivid dreams, what should happen is the brain paralyzes most skeletal muscles. It doesn't paralyze muscles that are involved in things like the heart beating or respiration. However, it does paralyze biceps and quadriceps and hamstrings and so on. In these people, that doesn't happen. So they act out their dreams. And there are some very entertaining videos that you can find of people doing things like pretending to smoke during their dreams and so on. And while that might seem entertaining and it might even seem benign initially, these people are at much, much higher risk of going on to develop various disorders, most prominently Parkinson's disease. So the proportion of people with REM sleep behavior disorder that develop Parkinson's disease is, is quite alarming. And for that reason, you really want to try and do what you can to intervene as early as possible.
Mm -hmm. So uh, how can we become aware of uh, if we are optimally aligned with our natural chronotype or is our circadian rhythm okay or not? Like I've been using Aura Ring for quite many years now and I can see certain patterns of my REM and deep sleep and the sleep quality and quantity depending on when I go to sleep and when mm. I wake up. But is this mm. like a valid way of measuring or a reliable way of measuring the circadian rhythm or is there something better? Yeah, what can we do like at home for measuring it? Yeah, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. So first, if you're just curious about what your chronotype is, then there are questionnaires that you can take online. And there's one named the morning, morningness, eveningness questionnaire. Oh yeah, I've actually created. done that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was created in the 70s by Jim Horn and one of his colleagues. And it just gives you a score up to, I think it's maybe 86. And the higher your score, the more of a morning type you are. But there are a couple of issues with that particular questionnaire. One is that a lot of it is about preference, whereas chronotype should arguably be a quantitative biological construct, which is basically the product of all these individual clocks that you have in your body and the emergent properties of that system. Another is that there's a ceiling effect because the total score can only go up to 86. And because people get earlier and earlier as they get older, a lot of, elderly people hit the ceiling and they score 86, they max out. So they don't really know how early they are relative to their peers. There are other questionnaires and perhaps the pick of the bunch is the Munich chronotype questionnaire test, which was created by Till Ronenberg and some colleagues in 2003. And that asks you about your sleep wake habits during work days and during non-work days. And it uses mid-sleep time, corrective for sleep debt on non-work days as a proxy of your chronotype. And it's, it's not perfect. And some people have written some very thoughtful reviews about some of its shortcomings. I'm thinking in particular of an article by Conrad Yankowski. But it's a helpful tool. And I don't know if you can still answer it online and then get the output that gives you where you sit on that chronotype spectrum you used to be able to there used to be a website named the wp.org i think it was but i'm a feeling it's now defunct and has been for a few years but that's one of the other tools now if we put those aside obviously there are also wearables that might give you some indication of what your chronotype is but i think practically there are certain things that people need to understand and need to engage in if they want to live in alignment with their chronotype and i know that lots of forces influence when we sleep and how much sleep we get and so on but pragmatically i think that thinking about things such as when you eat and when you exercise relative to your sleep wake cycle makes a lot of sense and i'll give a couple of examples of this so if you take exercise then when you wake up in the morning, after you've been lying on your back or on your side or on your front for several hours, hopefully, the discs between your vertebrae are pumped up like balloons. They've been filling with fluid overnight 
And what that means is that you are actually poorer in the morning. You might have noticed that. But what it also means is that if you then go and do strenuous exercise, in particular, if you're lifting heavy loads near end ranges of motion, then you're going to be more prone to herniating those discs. Your core body temperature is also going to be quite low at that time of day. It's typically lowest shortly before you wake up in the morning. And as a result of that and some related circadian driven processes, you're not going to be that strong at that time of day. Although the, the amplitude of your strength rhythm, so the difference between when you're at your weakest each day and when you're at your strongest is dependent on when you habitually exercise. So if you're used to exercising in the morning, then the difference between your performance in the morning and your performance in the mid afternoon won't be as big as if you were used to exercising in the afternoon, if that makes sense. But all of that was to say that I don't think that the optimal time of day to do strenuous strength training is straight after you wake up in the morning. If you can do that type of exercise a bit later in the day, ideally, probably in the biological afternoon, and maybe that's between 4 and 6 p.m. for a lot of people. And I just want to add that I recognize that there are lots of shift workers out there, probably 15, 20% of people worldwide work shifts. And I'm putting them to one side for the purpose of this discussion so far. And I apologize for that. But I think for non-shift workers, that approach makes sense. And then, of course, you also don't want to exercise too hard too late in the day. Because when you exercise, you will increase your core body temperature. You will also synthesize higher levels of stress hormones to mobilize energy reserves, increase arousal and so on, so that you complete the exercise effectively. And those changes coupled with increases in blood pressure, heart rate, and some changes in brain function will likely make it harder for you to then fall asleep at night if you exercise too late in the day. And so while the research on the subject is equivocal, and I don't want to go into all the details as to why I think it's quite limited, I do think that if you're doing strenuous exercise, it makes sense to finish that exercise absolutely no later than three hours before bed, but ideally by four hours before bed. If you're doing less strenuous exercise so if you're just going for a brisk walk say and i don't think the time matters as much i think you can do that up to a couple of hours before bed without any ill effects and then just to touch on a couple of other behaviors one is your patterns of light exposure and something i haven't mentioned yet is that when we do certain things relative to the timing of our circadian system so relative to our circadian phase will influence the timing of our body's clock and this is most true of light exposure if you expose yourself to lots of high intensity light that's rich in short wavelengths and that's the type of light you would get outdoors on a sunny day between about two hours before you would naturally wake up and about two hours after you naturally wake up you'll tend to anchor the timing of your body's clock early in the day and so if you're trying to go to bed early at night so that you can get plenty of sleep before you wait for an alarm in the morning, then making sure that you get up and you expose yourself to lots of that type of light within two hours after waking is really important. And then at the other end of the day, you want to minimize your exposure to that type of light in the period before sleep. 
and that might entail dimming the lights in your living environment. It might entail turning off the overhead lighting and just having lamps on, which makes some sense for various reasons. But one is just that some of the cells that are involved in the effects of light on the circadian system are concentrated in the lower retina. And so what that means is that it's overhead light that can most strongly influence the timing of the circadian system, which makes sense when you think about things from an evolutionary perspective, because if you're exposed to light at night, yes, it could have come from the moon and from the stars, but a lot of it would have been from fire. And if you look at the light from fire, it's low down. So it's not affecting those cells as much. And it also isn't very rich in those short wavelengths, which is why it appears that kind of amber color. So that is the type of light exposure at night that you want. However, like salt, salt lamps are okay. Yeah, yeah, provided that they're not bright green or bright blue. If they're, mm -hmm. if they're that sort of reddish, yellowish hue, then that's ideal. And I can speak about yeah. specific lighting parameters too, but if, if you're buying light bulbs for your house, for example, then the color temperature matters and you probably want a color temperature of no higher than about 3000 kelvins just if somebody wants a specific number and then if however you're different and you're trying to shift your sleep later because you're now 70 years old and you find yourself waking up at 3 a.m and that makes your social life a struggle then you want to minimize your exposure to light in that period between two hours before you naturally wake up and two hours after. And you want to get more light later in the day. And that's going to anchor your body's clock later, pushing your sleep wake cycle back, if that makes sense. But with that said, for most people, my advice is just to spend more time outdoors each day. <laughs> and you see this in large surveys. If you, if you just spend more time in daylight, then on average, you are an earlier chronotype and your sleep-wake timing is better aligned with the world around you. And if that's the case, then you're less likely to need to wake up to an alarm in the morning compressing your sleep. And you'll also get those benefits of daylight that I touched on earlier. So that's a mm, bit about... Do you, also have like a, do you also have like a specific number or what, what would be like a good amount of amount of um, time spent outside on the day like half an hour enough or it should be several hours i think it depends what you're optimizing for and i get bored of myself saying that but these things are always nuanced and you might be able to fully align your circadian system with the 24-hour day through relatively little light exposure it might only take something like 15 minutes of light exposure each day to keep you on time with the world around you however if you spend more time outdoors than that you will get additional benefits and it's likely that some of those benefits i mentioned earlier brain function eye health i didn't mention vitamin d synthesis by the skin but obviously well that's not so relevant to us in northern europe at the moment in february other times of year it's very relevant And vitamin D is very important to immune function, to bone mineralization, hence why vitamin D deficiency results in rickets and many other things too, perhaps including the sleep-wake cycle, although I don't think that's particularly well proven. So I think my, my general advice would be that provided you're not doing yourself any harm, so you're not getting sunburned and 
you're not exposing your eyes to more light than would be ideal. There are some people who can expose their eyes to too much light and, and maybe as a result of that, they do themselves some damage. And if you have an existing eye condition, one of these, for example, is retinous pigmentosa, then you might not want to spend too much time exposing yourself to that type of light or if you're outdoors, wear sunglasses. But outside of those instances, I think it's a case where more is better. And that also jives with my intuitions when you just think about how humans have lived naturally for hundreds of thousands of years. And I'll just add that I recognize that it might seem like I'm prone to what's known as the naturalistic fallacy in which you assume that something that's natural is good. But if you look at the health of pre-industrial people who don't have access to artificial lighting or processed food and they're much more physically active than many people in Western societies, then outside of getting infections that end their life early, they typically have fantastic health span. They're typically very healthy late into life. They have excellent metabolic health, cognition, exercise capacity, and so on. And so I think there's a huge amount to learn from those people. There were some great tips for sure. One thing before, like I want to talk about chrono, chronobiology and then more about this nutrition side as well. But one thing I think is like uh, what, we, what we discuss a lot when we talk about sleep and circadian rhythm is the melatonin and supplementation in general. So what's your view on that? Like, does the melatonin supplementation support our circadian rhythm? Should we, should we take it? Is there a need to take it every night? And if yes, then like how and or in what situations? Is there a need to take it every night? For most people, absolutely not. It's not needed. Now, with that said, melatonin does certainly have important roles in the circadian system and does have some typically modest effects on sleep. And it's probably worth just briefly pausing and describing what melatonin is because that tees up the rest of the conversation. So melatonin is a hormone that's synthesized by the pineal gland in the brain that signals to cells throughout your body that it's dark outside and hence to engage in appropriate activities for that time of day because not all of our cells are light sensitive. If you think about the cells in your liver, it's not like they're exposed to light like your eyes. They don't know what time of day it is and they need these internal time cues. And melatonin is foremost among those. Because of that role in signaling darkness, it does, of course, affect various different brain structures that are involved in the sleep-wake cycle. And if you give people melatonin, and it's typically taken about an hour before somebody goes to bed. However, you can also use it to shift the timing of someone's circadian system. And for this reason, well-timed melatonin use can be helpful in jet lag, depending on the specific context. But just focusing on sleep, typically, if you take a healthy person, you give them melatonin, and there are different forms of melatonin, there are different doses and so on, and we can go into those if you like, they will fall asleep slightly faster, but we're talking about a few minutes they might sleep slightly more efficiently. So it might be that the proportion of time that they're in bed, that they're actually asleep is slightly higher when they take melatonin. But 
again, we might be talking about a couple of percentage points on average, and they might sleep slightly longer. Again, we're talking about a few minutes. So small effect size is typically for most people. In certain clinical contexts, it can be helpful. And melatonin is indicated for some sleep disorders. I'm thinking, for instance, of sleep maintenance insomnia in elderly people. What can happen as people get older is that they wake frequently during the night and they struggle to fall back asleep. This is known as sleep maintenance insomnia. And if you take timed release melatonin, there's a particular form that's been well studied named circadian, which is made by Neurom Pharmaceuticals. If you take two or three milligrams of that shortly before bed, because the melatonin is released for a longer period than typical melatonin, the half-life of circadian is roughly four hours, whereas the half-life of regular melatonin is probably more like 45 minutes for most people. It can support sleep by helping to maintain sleep through the night by providing that steady stream of melatonin and acting on those sleep centers in the brain to consolidate sleep. There are other sleep disorders where melatonin is helpful and there are six broad categories of categories of sleep disorders, but melatonin is generally most helpful for the circadian rhythm, sleep-wake disorders. There are lots of these. There's advanced sleep phase syndrome, delayed sleep phase syndrome, shift work disorder, jet lag, and various others too. But one in which melatonin is particularly helpful is known as non-24-hour sleep-wake rhythm disorder. And in these people, those cells that I mentioned earlier in the retina that are very important to receiving photons and then signaling information about the light-dark cycle to the master clock in the brain, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, those cells in the eye don't work so well. And as a result of this, or it can happen for other reasons, their body's clocks lose alignment with the world around them. They run free. And so on some days, their clocks are aligned with what's going on outside. But over time, they drift around the clock. And so on some days, they will be completely misaligned with the world around them. And if you give these people melatonin at an appropriate time, then what you can do is you can help regularize their sleep-wake timing. It can be hugely transformative for those people. And then outside of those contexts, I think for the rest of us, melatonin is typically most helpful for things like jet lag, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And there's a website that I particularly like named jetlagrooster.com. It's free to use. And if you're traveling, you can punch in the details of where you're leaving from, where you're going to, how long your flight is, whether you have stopovers, whether you want to adjust your sleep to the new time zone in advance of going out and so on. And also whether you want to use melatonin and it will give you personalized recommendations related to when to expose yourself to light, when to avoid light so that you can get over jet lag faster. That's very cool. Yeah, I think that's actually something that many people are uh, like uh, wondering on how should I actually overcome this jet lag? And it's so annoying to go for like a trip that's week long and then you suffer from the first three days to suffer from jet lag and you can't really enjoy your vacation or whatever. So these kind of tools are perfect for that. I think it often feels like 
just when you finally synchronize the new time zone, you, you have to fly home again. That website can be helpful for that. But I just, just wanted to close a couple of loops released to melatonin. Mm. And one is just that there are lots of different forms of melatonin and different doses that are available. And some are helpful in different contexts. So time release melatonin. And there's some that you can buy over the counter named microactive can be helpful for sleep maintenance issues. So if you wake frequently for extended periods, then that product might make more sense. For other people, and for jet lag in particular, you want regular melatonin. And the doses of those two that you're after might be a bit different. So time release, maybe you want about two milligrams. Regular melatonin, you probably want between 300 micrograms and one milligram. And there are also certain metabolic disorders in which melatonin might be helpful. One of these, for example, is PCOS. Melatonin has various different roles in things like immune regulation. It's, it's an antioxidant, for instance, and also in blood sugar control. And if you look, for instance, at people who have poor blood sugar control, so type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or PCOS, then they often have unusual melatonin rhythms, which might in part contribute to their metabolic disturbances. And preliminary studies suggest that if you give people with some of these disorders, it's probably been best studied in the context of diabetes, higher doses of melatonin. So we're perhaps talking about five milligrams or so, then they might experience some benefits on their metabolic health too. The problem, however, is that a lot of the melatonin that you'll buy over the counter doesn't contain what it claims to. And this is in part due to the fact that the supplement industry historically hasn't been very well regulated. And there was a study that was published a few years ago that took melatonin products off the shelves and assessed their melatonin contents and also looked at whether they contain serotonin, which is a precursor to melatonin, but serotonin, if anything, actually probably slightly promotes wakefulness. It's disputed, but probably slightly. And what they found was that the amount of melatonin that was in the products varied from about 80% less than what was claimed on the label to about 480% more than what was claimed on the label. 480% more. 480, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, and if you took an individual product and you, you tested it multiple times, there was large variation within the product too. So it's not like that particular product was systematically low. Sometimes the tablets contained much less than what they said Sometimes the tablets contain much more than what they said, and that was within the same bottle. So if you can source your melatonin well, and if you're using melatonin intelligently, and I touched on some of the applications earlier, but not all of them, then I think it can be a helpful sleep aid, but it's by no means a panacea. And just recognize that a lot of the melatonin that's out there isn't really what you're after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very important, important information, actually. And I'm, I'm shocked by the 480% more, more than the bottle says. So yeah, definitely check your melatonin source. And would you say like, uh, if you need melatonin, if you're going to use it for whatever reason, then the best way is to get a prescription for that. Yeah, if you can get one. A lot of people can't get one. So what I would say is that there are a few websites out there that 
act as third-party testing bodies. So they'll take products off the shelves and they'll look at whether there are any ingredients in there that shouldn't be in there or contaminants. And one of these websites that I like is consumerlab.com. You have to pay for an annual membership. It's not particularly expensive. It's maybe 30 pounds, something like that, 35 euros, 40 euros. And they have a page on melatonin products. And if my memory serves, then of the different melatonin products that they tested, a couple did meet their label claims, including a Swanson product, a life extension product in general. And I, I have no affiliation whatsoever. I just like their products. In general, life extension products do seem to contain what they claim to. So there are certain brands that I think are, are relatively reputable. And you can always reach out to these brands and ask for certificates of analyses to see if they've done the legwork necessary to prove that what they say is in the products is in the products. Mm, that's a great tip. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Is there then, is there like any one supplement that you would say that definitely is good for, for sleep support? As I was getting at before, I, I think it, it always depends. And in this instance, there are lots of things to consider. So one is, why is somebody struggling with their sleep? Some people struggle with their sleep because of excessive daytime rumination. Some people struggle with their sleep because of pain. Some people struggle to fall asleep at the start of the night. Some people struggle to sleep through the night. Some people struggle because they have sleep-related breathing problems, such as obstructive sleep apnea. And all of those indicate different supplements if you want to try supplements. With that said, some sleep problems are more pervasive than others. And certain supplements have been better studied and consistently been proven to be helpful for certain forms of sleep issues. And if you look at the different sleep disorders specifically, then insomnia is the most common, although obstructive sleep apnea is worryingly common, especially because over time, more and more people are becoming overweight and obese. So for people who are struggling with insomnia type sleep issues, they're maybe struggling with some daytime issues, their memory isn't as sharp as it used to be, their mood is lower than they would like it to be, they feel fatigued and listless. And then at night, they're either struggling to fall asleep sleep through the night or they're struggling because they're just waking up too early in the morning or they're waking up unrefreshed the next day and that's happening consistently then i think a few supplements can be helpful and my favorites are typically the following if you are a keen exerciser or you want to experience some cardiometabolic health benefits too then i think tart cherry juice is great probably the best studied form of tart cherry juice is cherry active and it's often taken as two 30 milliliter shots a day one might be around the time of exercise and one might be an hour before bed one of the cool things about tart cherry juice is that it does seem to improve multiple dimensions of sleep such as sleep latency so how long it takes you to fall asleep and sleep efficiency and perhaps sleep duration too but it also can lead to a variety of other benefits. So in particular, it can speed recovery from exercise. There are lots of studies looking at very damaging exercise of doing things like running downhill or doing strength, strenuous strength training, types of exercise in which you end up with very sore muscles. And then you give people cherry juice 
and you look at how quickly their strength and power performance returns the baseline. It's much faster after tart cherry juice supplementation. And that's probably because it has a lot of antioxidant constituents and it's very rich in polyphenols and various other healthful components. So that would be one. Another is L-theanine, which is an amino acid in tea. It's the most abundant amino acid in tea. It comprises something like 50% of the amino acids in tea. And it acts on various different brain circuits. So it seems to be a, a GABA-A agonist. It also potentially affects some serotonergic brain circuit, circuits, some dopaminergic ones too. And because of those effects on the brain, it seems to both support sleep, probably in part by reducing feelings of stress and anxiety, but also can potentially slightly improve mood too. It has a fantastic safety profile. The dose that people use is, is typically about 200 to 400 milligrams a day based on the literature that I've read and there was a systematic review published a couple of years ago that did a really good job. I don't think that 400 milligrams is necessarily more beneficial than 200 milligrams. You can also use it earlier in the day as a so-called nootropic, something to improve brain function because it has a, those anxiety relieving properties that I mentioned earlier. So it seems to dampen responses to stresses, things like cortisol and also some subjective feelings of stress, but it can also sharpen attention. And so if you want to get into a state of relaxed attention, which is really conducive to doing certain types of knowledge work, then L-theanine can be great. And for that reason, a lot of people use it in combination with caffeine because you get the boost and alertness and reaction time from caffeine, but you also don't get the jitters and you don't feel your heart pounding in your chest as a result of the L-theanine. So I think L-theanine can be great. And then the other that I think is probably particularly interesting to people listening to this because I'm guessing a lot of these people are probably interested in exercise too, is ashwagandha. And ashwagandha is a herb that's been used for thousands of years in parts of the world, such as India. It's a so-called adaptogen, again, meaning that it helps people probably slightly better cope with stress. And we don't fully understand how it acts, but the primary bioactive constituents appear to be with analytes, such as with, with Afrin A and some others, but I only mention that because when you're picking an ashwagandha product, you probably want to get a product that's standardized for those particular bioactives. And there are a few of these. One of them is KSM 66, which is the best studied one. It's the one that I typically recommend, but there are others to the latest of which is Shodan, S-H-O-D-E-N which is more concentrated in those bioactives. And as a result, the dose that you need is likely lower. So whereas most studies of KSM 66 have people take 300 milligrams twice a day, although you could just take 600 milligrams once for Shodan, you might need 250 milligrams, something like that. And the reasons that I like ashwagandha are that obviously stress related sleep problems are very common. But also ashwagandha has some interesting effects on various different health parameters. If we take a few of these, then there was a systematic review recently showing that of all of the supplements that are out there that have been studied for effects on cortisol, 
ashwagandha probably most consistently can lower cortisol in particular in the morning. There was another study that looked at the effects of supplements on testosterone synthesis in males, and ashwagandha was one of two that was found to consistently boost testosterone synthesis. And I think that's probably of interest to a lot of men. On average, the size of that effect is probably something like 15% when it's consumed regularly over time. So it's, it's meaningful potentially. And then it might also have some positive effects on some aspects of cardiometabolic health. And there's some evidence showing that it can also speed the rate at which people adapt to exercise. If you put people through structured resistance training, they go to the gym several times a week and they lift weights in a progressive manner. And you give half those people ashwagandha and half the people a control or a placebo, then on average, the ashwagandha group gains substantially more fat-free mass, so skeletal muscle. They also lose slightly more fat mass and they gain strength faster. So when you look at all of those different benefits of ashwagandha i think it's it's a really appealing candidate as a sleep aid many of the studies aren't the highest quality but i think that the weight of the evidence suggests that it's helpful safety profile generally looks pretty good there are a few not many at all case reports of liver injury which is hard to unpack at the moment because we don't fully understand how those came about but those are very rare given the number of people that use it on a regular basis. And I, I think that it has a lot of potential and I, I use it personally from time to time. So I think that those are some of the more interesting ones, but just want to reiterate that it always depends on the situation. And there are actually dozens of supplements that can be helpful d- depending on what somebody's struggling with most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And when, uh when people are doing supplements or using supplements, it's always good to do your own research. And, you know, if any medication, whatever, you always need to consult your doctor as, uh, first as well. And, you know, learn learn a little bit about what you are actually having, why you're having, and might that have any interactions with, I don't know, your, your current medication or your genetics or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, very good reminder for us and thank you so much for the very detailed uh, guidance to these supplements and you're actually also you have founded this company called resilient nutrition very good products like very specific products on building resilience functional stuff uh, functional food products so definitely check that out i did download also this free guide that you have principle of resilient nutrition probably one of the most detailed like uh, very well explained guides on how actually nutrition can be used to support resilience um like time restriction eating and everything like that that it's very well explained there on how to do these things and why most importantly not only how but why and how Mm. your body might react to that time restricted eating has been very uh, interesting for me for various reasons. Uh, first of all, it effects on brain health are pretty pretty interesting. But I started doing, uh, whether you want to call it intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. So I have like an eight-hour eating window. I've done this for maybe three years now, quite consistently, so daily, basically. And I can see improvement in my energy levels. I don't get this like afternoon dips anymore. 
and also my migraines, uh, which I was I was like a chronic sufferer or my, of migraines, they reduced mm. quite significantly. Although I must say that it's not always recommended for migraineurs to do like prolonged fasts, uh, but mm -hmm. for me, I keep it quite short. I don't do like super long fasts. It's only like this time restriction or I, I have the eating window per day. And um, especially also because for the brain benefits of uh, producing more keto, ketone bodies and improving metabolic flexibility and everything. And uh, I like the passage in the book or this guide, this uh, which is download, downloadable for free, by the way, in in Greg's webpage or the Resilient Nutrition webpage. Totally recommend to download that. Uh, it says, "What if you could improve your diet without changing what you eat? What if I told you that simply changing when you eat could profoundly affect your health?" And this is like the key message in this chrono nutrition. Um, so can you tell a little bit about why chrononutrition is important and what are the main principles of chrononutrition? It's important for a few reasons, and we've touched on those at various points in the conversation. But one of them is just that by applying some of its principles, you can time your food intake and your consumption of drinks to in line with when your body is best set to digest and metabolize those foods. And you can also likely support the function of your circadian system too, because there's some evidence that food per se is a time cue for some of the clocks in your body. I didn't really flesh this out earlier, but it's likely that every single one of the cells in your body has its own molecular clock. And while the master clock in the brain and the suprachiasmatic nucleus that I mentioned earlier is most important in orchestrating the other clocks in the body. It seems that outside of that central clock in the brain, in these other peripheral clocks, food intake might have some effect on the timing of them too. And we don't know that for certain yet because there are various different criteria that need to be met for food to be truly considered a time cue. But so far that likely seems to be the case. And I won't go into the details as to why, but just to expand more on some of the benefits that people can experience. I think one of these actually counterintuitively relates to the fact that when people focus on when they eat, they inadvertently improve what they eat too because we tend to consume certain things at certain times of day and examples that i always use are that not many people drink alcohol at breakfast and not many people eat cereal at dinner and so if you try time restricted eating which i personally define as restricting your intake of any calorie containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each 24-hour day. So, Inka, you mentioned earlier that you typically use an eight-hour eating window or a caloric period, to use the scientific term. You might, for example, start your first meal at 10 a.m. and finish your final meal at 6 p.m. So that'd be eight hours elapsed between those two. When people do that, they tend to consume fewer unhealthy foods late in the day. They're less prone to late night snacking in front of the television. And so 
while they feel like they're only really changing when they eat, they are actually improving their diet quality too and experience some benefits related to that. But if we focus just on the importance of timing, then it does seem to matter, as is often the case, it probably matters most to people who don't have great metabolic health to start with. And there are some people for whom I don't think time-restricted eating is necessarily optimal. So if, for example, you are a large male athlete and you burn energy at very high rates, you need 5,000 calories plus each day just to maintain your body mass, then trying to squeeze all of that into an eight-hour eating window might not be smart. However, if you're carrying a few excess pounds, your blood pressure is a bit higher than you would like it to be, your blood sugar regulation isn't the best, then time-restricted eating could be exactly what you need. And as a meta-analysis done a couple of years ago, looking at all of the different relevant time-restricted eating studies that have been done to date, finding that on average, if you just ask people to focus on restricting their intake of all calorie-containing items to a period of probably four to 10 hours each day, then they tend to lose a little bit of weight, lose a little bit of fat, not lose much muscle, slightly reduce their blood pressure, slightly reduce their fasting blood sugar, reduce their triglycerides too, all of which would make your doctor happy. And within that four to 10 hour range, I think it's important to recognize that more restrictive time-restricted eating protocols aren't necessarily better. And if you took your average Joe off the street, who was spreading out his caloric intake over 14 hours each day, and you asked him to only consume two, we- two meals within a four-hour window each day, then it would put him off and he wouldn't be able to sustain it. If, however, you asked him to start with a 12-hour eating window, and then over time you cut that down to 10, then it will be a substantial improvement relative to where he was previously, and he'd still experience some of those benefits. Just to touch on a few more details, in general, it seems that concentrating more of your food intake early in your eating window, maybe that's breakfast and lunch, might have some benefits over concentrating more of it later in the eating window. And I could cite many studies related to this, but the one that I normally default to is one that was done by Daniela Yakubovic in 2013, and she took two groups of overweight and obese women and put them on standardized weight loss diets. So the diets contain the same number of calories as each other, same amount of carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And both groups followed the diets for 12 weeks, but in one condition, they consumed half their calories each day at breakfast. So big breakfast condition. In the other condition, they had half of them at dinner, big dinner condition. After the 12 weeks, the big breakfast group lost more than twice as much weight, more than twice as many inches off their waists and had better improvements in their blood sugar and blood lipids too. And those types of findings have since been recapitulated. So outside of the context in which you do your exercise late in the day, because exercise results in all sorts of beneficial changes that influence things like the tissues that you shuttle nutrients into. If you do strength training, then you're more likely to take the glucose in your bloodstream and put it into your skeletal muscle than you are to take the glucose and use it as a substrate for the formation of new fat tissue for example so outside of the context when you're exercising late in the day i think having more of your food intake early in the day is generally a good thing and then the other dimensions that i think matter are the regularity of your meals or snacks 
So having a consistent pattern from one day to the next, maybe that's three meals a day, is definitely advantageous. And various people have done studies related to that. I normally default to some work by Ian McDonald, who's at the University of Nottingham. He showed that when you standardize the total number of meals that people consume over time, people who eat a regular number of meals each day have reduced appetite. They burn more calories after consuming their food and they experience some other benefits too. So I think regularity is key. And then finally, the other dimension, which might not technically fall within chronic nutrition, but I lump it in the same category for simplicity, is the sequence in which you consume items at individual eating occasions. And what I mean by that is that if you sit down to a meal, and, and just for the sake of explanation, let's say that the meal includes bread, meat, and vegetables. If you start with the meat and or the vegetables, and you have the bread later, compared to if you start with the bread and then you have the meat and the vegetables 10 minutes later, then your blood sugar responses to the first condition in which you start with the meat and veg will be much, much better than if you start with the carbohydrate-rich foods. So at discrete meals, lunch, dinner, and so on, unless it's weird for whatever reason, starting with your protein-rich items and your fiber-rich items and your fat-rich items and saving the carbohydrate-dense ones for later in the meal is a really smart move because your blood sugar control over time contributes to your risk of all sorts of health problems, whether it's diabetes or Alzheimer's. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important message because Alzheimer's cases, for example, they are increasing all the time and maybe people are getting more and more aware and a little bit afraid even potentially getting some sort of mild cognitive impairment and like insulin sensitivity maintaining that I think was one of the key things for protecting the brain for life mm -hmm. and yeah protecting lowering the risk for those diseases as well as other lifestyle mediated diseases for sure so Yeah, so principles of chrononutrition um, that's outlined in this in this guide, for example, will help in managing some of the risks that might be associated with uh, poor diet habits. Then I would like to maybe um, like close this discussion with um, asking you one specific question. And um, first of all, I want to thank you for, for like super detailed, good information on, on chronobiology uh, biology and the importance for our, our health. And um, if you now could go back, let's say 10 years or whenever it was before you started uh, being like uh, very into these things, maybe 20 years or something, and you could give an advice to your younger self, one thing to focus on health-wise, what would that be? Nobody's ever asked me that question, and it's a really good question. It would be to do everything possible to maintain strong relationships with people that you care about. And that sounds like a cheesy answer, But I think it's so important, particularly in a modern context in which people 
are increasingly disconnected from others. And I also say that in part because what can happen, of course, is that as somebody's interest in health blossoms, they become so neurotic about eating at the right time and doing their exercise appropriately and getting enough sleep and so on. But other things that are really meaningful, in particular in the long term, suffer. And you don't want that to happen. I don't feel like that's really happened to me too much, but maybe that's happened a little bit over time. And the other piece of advice that came to mind was just to be very particular about the information that you digest. And the tricky aspect of that, and it's why I didn't choose it, is that when you're starting out, it's really hard to discern good information from bad information, especially nowadays when there's so much information out there propagated through social media and YouTube. And when somebody is new to all of this stuff, it can be really overwhelming. And I actually think there are very simple heuristics that people can live by that will guide them well when they're confused about what to do. And maybe the most important relates to something that I said earlier, which is just thinking about how humans have lived for hundreds of thousands of years and using that as some sort of baseline about the different inputs that we need as a species, which is basically strong relationships, whole food, plenty of light during the day, plenty of rest at night and being physically active. And it doesn't really need to be that much more complicated than that. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear what questions and ideas you got from today's episode. So leave a comment on YouTube and let me know about you. If you liked this episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. This also helps with podcast ranking and visibility. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to today's episode, consider sharing it with them and spreading health. Looking forward to having you around next time as well. Subscribe to get notified on the next episode. See you next time at the same place. Have a great rest of the week.